This episode of the American Farriers Journal podcast is brought to you by KWell. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. Some farriers like working with draft horses. Some, well, they like to stay far away from them. One who built a career and excelled with these horses is Bruce Matthews. Now retired and living down in Texas, Bruce joins us for this episode and shares his advice for working with drafts. He begins by telling us how he got into horses and eventually became a farrier. eight, nine years old, neighbor down the road had, had pinto horses. I started hanging out with their kids and gradually I I, uh, I rode with them. Plus my aunt raised saddlebreds down in South Jersey and I used to spend summers down there in my younger years. I learned to ride. She was a, a riding instructor and her daughters used to show. So I learned to ride down there. And uh, I don't know. It, it, it just took over. I was I was heavy into music when I was a young kid, and then the horses came along, and the music took second second uh, uh, second seat to the to the horses. At one point, growing up through high school, I had up to five animals of my own. When I went into service, I used the uh, GI Bill when I got out, and I went to school up in in uh, Upper State, New York. North of Syracuse, one of the first horseshoeing schools. That was in 1971. Chuck Nielsen was uh, a student of Buster Conklin. And Chuck started his own school. Hey, the funny thing is, all these years, I've never heard of anybody else who went to it. And uh, <laughs> and I became friends with a gentleman from North Carolina. And, uh, and he went to the same school that I did. I went to New Hampshire first, and I started working with... Uh, with um, um breads, trotters and pacers and uh i did a lot of traveling in my in my younger years after after the service i worked with quarter horses up in ohio uh, up in uh, uh idaho i shod horses out in the rose parade uh in 1977. my traveling around gave me a, a vast amount of, of of experience in different climates different different uses of horses than what we were used to up in Connecticut. I grew up in Connecticut. I remember one day I was I was at a three day event down in, in, in southern Connecticut and I remember the Chris brothers, John and Joe, happened to be there and I, I was watching them and, and the respect that they got and uh, the way they were treated and stuff always left an impression on me. I think the Chris brothers were responsible for starting more more horseshoers throughout New England than probably anybody else. I, I know at that time they had like five crews on the road. Time goes on. I got married. My wife and I had uh, had Morgans and stuff. Eventually, I ended up in Vermont. I was shoeing horses and and and, and staying busy. Any uh, um, clinics that we went to, we traveled four and a half hours south to to Massachusetts down to Sneepa, and it was a big expense. I mean, uh, usually it was a two day deal, so we were losing two days worth of work, plus the expense of a of a of a motel and food and uh, and gas you know to go to a clinic was a fair amount of money back then mm-hmm. so i came back to vermont and i got on the phone and i started calling any I, any ferry that i could find in the state of uh, vermont new hampshire and, and and eastern new york and diane saunders ken norman ken norman was the first one to respond his remark was uh what can i do to help 
there was Ben Norman, Diane Saunders, and uh, oh, I think there were four, four or five on others. Dave Hender. That day we had a meeting down in in, uh, in Rutland. That was the day we formed the Vermont Ferries Association. I was the first president for for a few years, and and then uh, then we started elections, and, and we had some great people fill the fill the, the the spaces. It's still going today, strong. They 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 just had a really large clinic. Uh, we've almost always had good turnouts and stuff, but what it did was it brought the clinics to Vermont and 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 gave the folks of us up in Upper New England, Northern New England, a chance to to advance our educations and. And, and knowledge and stuff. So I've always been proud of that. Over the years, you built this reputation as a draft horseshoer and became very well known in New England and elsewhere. When did your work really take off to where you built that reputation? One day I came home and I said to my wife, I says, uh, I've had it. I said, uh, I'm going to transfer all my riding horse customers to, uh, to other farriers and I'm going to start doing drafts. I was really tired of all the idiosyncrasies of the customers. It, it's the same story a lot of farriers just tell you, you know, don't don't hit fluffy, don't do this, don't do that. Now I never really hit an animal, but but if I if I had to to get his attention, I I I you know use the back of my hand on his hip or something like that. I, I just got tired. It, it it was it was a lot of the things that farriers every day put up with uh, with riding horse customers. Um, not to say that they're all bad, but but. After, after a number of years, it, it, it wears on you. I switched to doing drafts, and it turned out to be the best thing that I ever did in my life. I found that I had a connection with the draft horses. I got along with them. I got along with the owners. And that was probably for a number of reasons, because uh, draft horse owners have a hard time finding somebody that wants to do drafts and can do the drafts. I, I filled that bill. So from... Where it normally takes a year to build a business, I was I was cranking with a full book after you know before a full year was up, just doing draft courses. At that point, I had I had long term customers uh, near the end uh, that I had for over thirty some odd years, and, and and of course there were always some that came and, and and went or whatever. When my wife passed away in two thousand six, the association bought me. Uh, <laughs> They bought me 30 meal tickets at the restaurant in town to make sure that I got something to eat. And my customers sent me home with food and, and this and that, or stick their window in, head in my window and ask me if I was eating all right. I had found a niche where people really cared. The next four years, I, I gradually slowed down. For whatever reason, I, I, I blamed it on my weight. I, I found that, that my breathing was getting real hard. What used to take me 10 minutes was taking me a half an hour to get done now. So in 2010, I, I, I sold our house and land and, and uh, I had a call from Dave Whitaker, a farrier up in, up, in, uh, up in Maine. And he said, this young fellow just came in touch with me and he wants to learn to do drafts. I met the young guy and we had a talk and I, I invited him to ride with me. And, and uh, he showed up on time and he was polite. He never said the wrong thing in front of customers. And, and such. So I went ahead and got him used to handling tools and working with the horses. And then he went off to Butler School up in Nebraska. I guess they split his time into two different periods. But but uh, when he finally got out of there, he came back and he was he was a pretty good shoer. And I ended up working out a deal with him where I ended up selling him my customer list and stuff. He took over the business and he's still doing 
a large portion of them now. But I moved, I left there in 2010, hooked up my fifth wheel, and I came south, went to Florida, and then I ended up moving over to Texas. Uh, my brother-in-law and, and, and my brother convinced me to go and join the VA, sign up for the VA. And it wasn't too long after that the VA said that I, I needed open-heart surgery. What the, the breathing problem was, that I had to have my aorta valve replaced, and I wasn't getting enough oxygen to the brain and, and, and such as that. When I came out after the recoup period, which was months, I started picking up some draft horses down here, and I got to know the secretary and president of the Texas Draft Association. I did their horses right up until I, I retired last year. It's been a good career, 45 years, and there's things I wish I could go back and change. Many of the time I thought about going back to another school to catch up on the new things that were coming out and stuff, but having bills and, and, and being married at the time and and all this just uh, just didn't allow it. For young people listening to this who are starting out with shoeing, when you talk about saying the wrong thing in front of a client, what what are you specifically talking about, and what what impact can that have? I wanted him to ask questions. I pretty much told him, "Remember your question and ask me." You know, when we're back in the truck and such. Um, sometimes the wrong question. Uh, uh, even though it's a, 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 an honest question and, 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 and is, is fine, sometimes the owners miss them through and, 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 and take it the wrong way or, or whatever. Um, so watching what you say in front of customers is, is always, always important. And I, I, I impressed that uh, strongly on him. Um, <clears throat> he, uh, I always asked the owner's permission, you know, when he first went with me, if, uh, if they minded, if uh, under my supervision, if if uh, if he worked on their horses, and and I I never got refused. The primary thing, and this this I I I don't know if you know, but I did clinics all over New England, Ohio. Did a demonstration, invited demonstration at Cornell, on handling horses, on how to how to how to get down under them, how to work with them, so you become a partner with the horse. So many barriers and and. Jeremy, there's a distinct line. Some farriers are in it strictly for the money. And a lot of them have come over from another business or another trade for whatever reason. And they lack horsemanship skills. And I, what I wanted to teach was I wanted to teach horsemanship skills. I wanted to teach how to get along with the animal, how to take an unruly animal and get him calm and get him to, to where you can work with him. I had a call from a farrier out in central, uh, central Pennsylvania he had a big Pertron mare, and every time he got under her, she'd draw her hind leg up and shoot him off like a cannon. He convinced the owner to have me come down, so he paid my expenses and stuff, and I came down. I saw the mare out in the pasture, and I, I said to the owner, I said, can I go out? She, he said, yeah. So I went out and, and uh, went up to the mare and stuff and talked to her a little bit, and then I reached down, and I went around the whole horse picking up all four feet and putting her in the position like a farrier would, and rapidly tap on the foot with my hands. And uh, I could see him taking his jaw up off the ground saying, what the heck is going on? Well, it was a case that, that the farrier was stretching the leg out too far when he was underneath him in the back. Hmm. Well, muscle reaction is going to get that horse to draw his leg in. Now, if you've got a smart horse, once he learns to draw you in and give a little bit of a kick and, he, and, and you come off, he's going to remember that. He, she'll remember that and they'll, and they'll try it again and again. I had another farrier who went to a, a rescue place with me, 
I kept telling him to, to drop his drop his waist, get down so that the, the hind end of the horse was level and not cockeyed. He kept saying, I am, I am, I am. And then all of a sudden he got down to the proper level and the horse totally relaxed. I said, the horse will let you know when you're, when you're there. And the horse totally relaxed. And all of a sudden I saw this big smile come on his face and he says, I felt it. And that was what I wanted. A farrier friend of mine in, in central Vermont had a, a perch on at his house. And he said, uh, I shoe the front, but the hind feet, he says, I can't get under him. I, uh, he says, she kicks. So he says, I ride around the road and wear the hind feet down. Now, this is a farrier and a good one. So I, I, he says, if you're ever in the area, stop in. So I, I swung in one day and we went out in the barn. And I watched him there while he was talking to me and, and uh, watching her ears, seeing if she was unsociable or if she was sociable. And I wanted to know, I wanted to see whether, you know, she was going to go back to the corner of the stall, which shows a sign of could be cowering or fear or, 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 or anything, but she didn't have any of these signs. So I asked him if I could go in and I went in and I talked to her in a soft touch and within minutes I, I, I was picking up behind feet. So he smiled. He said, yeah, he says, but he says, it always happens on cross ties. So I said, cool, let's put her on cross ties. So out we came and I picked up behind feet. Well, he's done that mare ever since now. The mare just had him buffaloed. Um, along the way, I, uh, I went to the harness maker in Vermont, not far from where I live, and I told him I wanted a, a surcingle and a leg strap, kind of like a dog collar that goes around the pasture. And I wanted some D-rings on it, and I, I drew him a diagram and, and uh, told him what it was. Well, he was an old teamster. He had Belgian horses, and he kind of laughed at me because the old-timers always put them in stocks. The, uh, the secretary of, of, of the draft association here in Texas can tell you that, that she had, uh, she had two yearling protrons from Aaron of Philly. And within 20 minutes to a half an hour, I had both of them picking up, uh, half an hour each. I had both of them picking up all four feet, putting them on the, on the, the, uh, footstool. And we never had to do any more work with them. It was just a case of picking up the feet, putting them on them and trimming them. And that's how the harness worked. Mark Goff in Ohio had me come out and I did a clinic at his place. Rick Burton was there, uh, Danvers was there. And what, what we did was any horse that came in, I knew nothing about. I'd never seen them before. I'd never touched them before. And they all came with problems from Passos to quarter horses to, to Belgians, you name it. I think there was, there was one there from almost everything. We even had mules there. I'd listen to the owner telling me what, what the problem was. And I'd put my harness on them, draw the leg up and, and, and teach them. And within minutes, we were underneath them, picking their feet up and trimming them right then and there. I sold the harness for a while through Meter Supply up in up in Rochester, New Hampshire. What do you think it was besides the harness that you learned and can help pass along to other farriers that that helped you get accustomed and get that that new animal accustomed to you? A lot of it is your attitude. If I walk up to a horse and I'm I'm nervous to begin with, that horse is going to pick up on that. And then the horse is going to turn around and say, well, if he's nervous, maybe I better be nervous. Or if I'm angry, the horse is going to say, uh-oh, this isn't good. So you need to stay calm. You need to like horses. And it's, it's the caring. It's the caring that's going to make you uh, uh, more aware of what you're doing. Too many barriers have gotten used to, to uh, when the animal doesn't stand, you, you, you haul off and kick them with the toe of your boot in their belly. 
or you take your hammer or your rasp and you you just you're in the in the shooting position. You just swing around and 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 nail them with whatever's in your hand. Or you get off from underneath the horse and you take them on the lead shank and you yank on that shank and back them up. And after the after the second step, the horse has no idea why why you're doing it. All he knows is that you're you're some crazy thing that's matching on the shank and he better scramble backwards to get out of your way. What kind of animal is ever going to let you work on them like that again without without being hesitant or, or, or fearful? So how you approach them, your attitude, how you feel about it. Um, a lot of farriers say, you know, I'm not a trainer. Well, you are a trainer. The minute you pick up that lead rope, the minute you take charge of that horse, you become a trainer because you're going to, in one manner or another, you're going to, you're going to require that horse to teach that horse to stand the way that you like it. And that's training. The time that I took schooling the horse, I, I, I never liked the word training. I, 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 I much prefer schooling. But the, the, the little time it took to school the animal, I made that time back a hundred times over with every new visit because I didn't have to fight him. I didn't have to struggle. I didn't have to chase him halfway across the barn. You see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Kind of a parallel question to that is, you know, you made this connection with draft horses, you know, you, you named so, so many breeds and disciplines you you were working with in your time. And then you made this switch to drafts. And a, a large part of that was this connection you made with it. What, did you have any experience with draft horses before, you know, before you uh, really got into horseshoeing? I had never, I had never worked with drafts before. The the closest I came was sleigh rides in the winter, but I'd never, never trimmed or shot them before. So it was a learning process for me. Bigger foot, more work, but basically the same thing. Bring the heels back, bring the toe back, you know, get the proper angle and stuff, clean the sole out. I just had a lot of opportunity some of it was trial and error, but I had, I, because I was willing to work on them, I had a lot of leeway given to me on, on, so I learned about, about debriding and I learned about false soles and I learned about, about long toes and, and passing angles. I learned it all on the job while I was working with the draft horses. I did take some time and I went over to, uh, to Maine and I spent one week with a, with a farrier over there who did drafts because I knew I was going to have to get into doing Scott's bottoms, and he did them. So, uh, so I went over and spent a week with him and such. But it just, I, I, Jeremy, it was just kind of like it was meant to be. It was, it was almost natural. I just kept learning, you know, as time went on. I worked for a family who uh, had an implement. Uh, they sold tractors and stuff down in uh, Rutland and stuff, and they had uh, they had a draft horse hitch that they take around and and show. And when I went in the barn, every horse went into went into stocks. By the time I left the barn, the stocks were gone, and and they put in another stall to have for another draft. In all the years, I can only remember two drafts that I ended up saying, you know, you're going to have to get someone else. My wife really pushed me on that at the time. These were two big pulling horses. They had a, a hot shot used on them and this and that. So they were beyond being scared. They they exceeded having fear. They were they were on the point of, of, of going crazy. And uh, when we put them in, in the stocks to do them, the vet would be there and she'd give them a shot. Well, the last time I did them, she had to boost the shot up just to try to get them done. And they still tried to kick their way out of the of the stocks. And I just reached the point where I said, you know, I, I can't do these two anymore. 
but uh, but in all the years, I can't think of anything else that I ever just walked away from. Did you work with others, or, or when you when you were a, a practicing farrier, did you have somebody ride along with you when you were working specifically with drafts? No, actually, I didn't because most most farriers didn't want to fool with drafts back then. Today, I see more and more farriers taking drafts on, but uh, but back then, nobody wanted to draft. And that's how I built my book so fast, because once the word got around, man, this fair and that fair and, 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 and so-and-so were sending me their customers because they didn't want to do the drafts. And, uh, and that's, that's how, how, I, how it got built up. It was like an inner piece. I don't know if that sounds corny or not, but when I, when I was working with a draft, I, it was like I always had this inner piece. We became partners. That's, an, uh, that's, a, that's a term I used a lot. When you're working with an animal, when you're working with a horse, you wanna you wanna work to become a partner with that horse, not 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 two separate entities that end up fighting each other, but you wanna meld together and work as a team. And that's what I tried to teach anybody that would listen. Some some listened, some didn't, and and such. And that's the way things go in life. Say you don't have a draft horse on your book, maybe you haven't seen one since shoeing school. If you have the opportunity to work with one, what? What are your keys to beginning work with a draft horse? Well, first off, let me say that um, the response you get from a lot of farriers is that I can chew two horses in the time or three horses in the time it takes to do a draft. So they're looking at it from the dollar sign. Second, they're saying that that's a lot of steel to turn. You know, that's a lot of time working and, and, and turning the steel. That's the second thing that, that, that used to be said quite commonly. I'll tell you who helped me start making changes. Uh, when Craig started started uh, um, bringing farriers in, they did a lot of shoes like roaster shoes and, and different shoes. And then the contest started. And and uh, every every clinic you go, or every contest you go to, every convention, they do a front and behind draft shoe. Well, once this got started, a lot of farriers realized that it wasn't, you know, it really isn't that hard to uh, to turn a shoe. And, and, and you're not going to turn a, a, a you're not going to make a draft shoe unless it's something special. You're going to take store-bought port, drop port shoes, and you're going to modify them. I think that made a big, big difference in, in, in changing attitudes uh, of, of, of a number of today's farriers. But I don't know of any farriers who strictly do draft horses other than, than uh, the Chris family, Tim. And, and uh, I know his cousin. I don't know if they're still doing it or not, but I'm sure somebody in the Chris family is still shoeing drafts. But I don't know of any others who still do them. One of the other things that came along that helped were these DVDs that came out. You got the two brothers over in Scotland there that, that uh, put out a great draft course uh, DVD. You've got uh, um, Mike Willerstein who put out, you know, how to trim a draft. These were these were a big help because people could take them home and watch it. And we're at a clinic, you, you better watch because it's going to be done one time with a DVD. You can see it over and over and over. And each time you see it, there's something probably that you missed the last time. Those are great aids. And I think those help make the change in, 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 in attitudes today. Did you do a fair amount of logging horses? Yeah, actually I did. I did logging horses. I did uh, pulling horses. I did hitch horses. I did riding drafts. Drafts, uh, when I, when I was, Chewing back then, um, they were they just started the trend of riding draft horses. It was it was like something that it was just slowly catching on. I don't think there was a, a an area of the drafts that I didn't do. 
during the during the logging season and stuff, I'd get a call to go up in the woods and stuff. And, and of course, they kept their horses. Those who, who logged with horses, when people right near the landing and stuff, they'd build a corral or something, and they'd keep the horses there. So on many time, I'd, I'd drive up into the woods and shoot the horses right there. The first logging horses I did was for a guy in Waterbury, Vermont. And uh, I went down, and he had pulling shoes on the draft. And pulling shoes have a great big cock on the front, a, a straight bar across the front, and the heels are brought straight down. So if they really grab the dirt, these animals are pulling those heavy stone bolts. But it's the wrong shoe for working in the, in the woods. He kept ripping them off, and when he'd rip a shoe off, he'd rip half the hook wall with it. So I convinced him to switch over to uh, either borium or studs, and I could build the borium up like a stud. And uh, once we got going on that route, then uh, he didn't get caught in the roots anymore, and he was able to move through the woods. And he still had the traction because there was snow and ice, but he still had traction, but he, but he wasn't tearing shoes off anymore. Whenever I got into a, into a, a, a different discipline or, or a different type use for the horse, I always wanted to see what the ground was like. I wanted to see how they worked them. I wanted to check everything out because it all, in one manner or another, it applies to not only how you're going to put the shoe on, but what kind of shoe you're going to put on. You need to know the job the animal's doing before you shoe it. So that was what I what I followed whenever I was doing uh, doing drafts. I used a lot of borium on the hitch horses. Mark Schneider and I took uh, took a couple of days and we we drove out together. We went over to Will Lentz over in uh, Michigan. We spent a couple of days out there, and then we came back. So. Whenever there was an opportunity, if I could afford it, you know, we would we would take off and do it. When I was at Cornell, I was invited. Uh, Mike was there at the time, and I was invited to come out for the demonstration on. And the way I hear it, one of the farriers uh, uh, asked Mike if he could bring in this this big Vermont draft that he was doing, and he was having a horrible time doing it. He'd go to pick up the front leg, and what the horse would do would be to push that leg right down, so 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 the guy couldn't hold it. Well, it happened to be on the 25th Farriers Convention held it at, uh, at Cornell when, when we put the demonstration on. Mark came out and helped me. I put the harness on the draft and worked him uh, with the harness on the front and long rope on the back. Once again, within half an hour, I had him standing there. We were picking up all four feet and doing everything. And, and this is a draft that dragged the person off the trailer when they came to unload it. And uh, Mark and I tied some, some lead shanks together and I think Mark, I think I put him up on him and he was riding him around in, in the arena. So the harness changes the demeanor of the animal. There's no force, there's no hitting, there's no pain or injury. A lot of a lot of the uh, training tools, they work off of pain. The head stall there, uh, the offset head stall uh, was, was sold for a long time there. That's a piece of steel and, it, and it's set off at an angle, put together like a bozelle. But what you do is you take and, and put that on the animal, and when he goes to act up, you slap the, the lead rope left to right, left to right. Well, that makes the bozelle bang against his against his face, and through pain, you're teaching the animal to stand quiet, or you're going to feel more pain. My harness never worked that way. My harness taught him to, to uh, I, it was like a pulley system. I'd make sure that they were standing square, balanced, and then I'd, I'd work the harness, and I'd bring the leg up. Once it was up, then I'd allow it, you know, I'd give them a few seconds. What I waited for was, was for them to stop jerking or jigging around. And even if it was just the time of a blink of an eye, then I released it. So they learned by by pressure and release. And like I said, there was never, ever any hitting, never any pain. I'd work them in a circle. 
and they learned so quick, but it changed their demeanor, their whole demeanor, because animals that were unruly, all of a sudden you, you could leave, you could, you could walk around. And I don't remember who the vet was, but she, uh, she was out in Minnesota, I think. I got a letter from a vet out there. And she had bought my DVD, and, and they, they were using the harness. They had a harness made up there, using it at one of the universities out there. And she let, sent me a letter to thank me for, for coming up with, a, with a, a method that actually worked and didn't harm the animal in any way. I think if I could go back, I think if I could impress more farriers through teaching them how to work with the animal, I think I'd like to do that. But uh, those days are gone now. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that stuff anymore. I live on a big farm down here in Texas. As it is, it was one of my customers, uh, and he has Brabant. Uh, he raises Brabant horses here and, and stuff. So every now and then I'll trim one of his drafts, but uh, but I retired last year. So the most I do now is shadow the uh, the uh, barrier sites on uh, on the internet. Every now and then I'll throw something in, but but uh, you know the barriers today, they, 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 the young people today. They are so much more intelligent. They figure things out in such that, that, that old timers, you know, we, we, a lot of stuff we did from trial and error. I'll be the first to say, uh, was I a great horseshoer? No, I was a mediocre horseshoer. I was a, 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 a working farrier. Did I have the potential to be great? Yeah, I believe I did. Uh, but, uh, but I never had the time or the opportunity to, uh, to go through the schooling and, Taking a written test for me has always been something hard all, all through school and everything else. And then like the AFA exam, if they give you a multiple choice, you know, some of them choices are so cotton picking close, you know, that, that uh, if I was out there doing the horse, then I'd, I'd show you in the whole deal. But sit down trying to read it and stuff, it was, it was always a hardship for me. So, so I, never, never, uh, I, never, I never reached the point that, that some of the barriers are at today you know uh, a lot of these guys i admire but as a working farrier i i, I did a good job i uh, i just sit back a lot of times and think you know if i if i had if i had gone to if i'd gone back to school if i'd done this uh um ben norman and i went down to uh, maryland to a free cert spent a week down there the guy putting it on with the past president one of the first past presidents uh, in my era and uh and such but uh Wherever there was a clinic, wherever there was an opportunity, and I could do hands-on, I tried to get there. But it was just the just the book learning that it was always hard on me. Today, you got young people out there that, that they can name veins and arteries and, and and dissect and and do all sorts of things in more depth than I than it was ever done in, in, in my time. There's a lot of a lot of really smart people out there, but for all their smartness, Jeremy. A lot of them lack horsemanship, and that was, I guess, I guess if anybody you talk to anybody that knew me, they'd tell you that that, that it was the horsemanship that I that I tried to uh, I tried to pass on. You know, Scotch bottom shoes certainly with their origin, uh-huh. they they serve a function, and uh, but then in the show world, there's a bit of a controversy about it. What are your thoughts on on the use of them with show horses? Scotch bottom started over in England. Primarily with drafts, uh, with Belgian, uh, not Belgian, but Clydesdales, uh, because they had big pan feet, and they worked in the bogs, and uh, and the shoes helped them work through the bogs and stuff, and that's that's the history that I I heard. Um, when it came to the show ring, I heard that that they never saw horses like that 
down there for the show ring and stuff. They used farm plates and 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 and, uh, and such. But when Budweiser came over to start buying buying Clydesdales and stuff, for whatever reason, they they put them in in Scotts bottoms and built them up and stuff. Uh, now the shoe itself is built in a manner to give more knee action and more hock action, and um, the hind shoe is 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 built so that uh, so that uh, when the foot lands. The hocks will come together on it. for Clydesdales. They 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 either want them touching or a fist, uh, the width of a fist. So the shoes are made to to uh, to help aid that. When the shoes are done by a professional farrier in the show ring, the foot is normal size. What we do is we build up with with big plastic pads, and uh, we'll put a shoe that that may be two times one time two times larger than the foot, but the pads are what fill the extra space. It's not, not big long hooks that are that, that needed to be trimmed, you know, weeks ago. The foot is if you pull the shoes and the pads off, the hook of the hole of the draft is, is a normal size normal size foot. A lot of farmers and, and, and people who didn't have a lot of money wanted to get into showing horses at the local fairs and such as that. And they started shoeing the horses themselves. Well, they didn't learn all the techniques. All they knew was they saw a great big foot with, with these shoes on. So they let the let the hooves grow and grow, and that's where a lot of the, the disagreement, bad things, everything comes out of out of out of uh, out of the the horse being shot in the wrong manner. But if you get a professional viewer, a professional draft viewer, we build it up with pads and stuff. We we you know winter time with the draft, the Belgian hitch that I did. As soon as show seasons went over. We pulled with the uh, the uh, uh, Scotch bottom, and I'd put them all into farm plates, and he'd train them in that. He'd work them all winter long in farm plates and stuff. You know, it's like the it's like Greenpeace and ASPCA and such. You know, you've got a few that have good intentions, but you've got a lot that go on about stuff they they really aren't knowledgeable about, and and a lot of the folks that uh, barriers included that that uh, knock the Scotch bottom. They're not a bad shoe. If they're put on properly, they're not a bad shoe. You've got, in other disciplines, you've got sliding plates for the back. If they're put on wrong, a lot of horses uh, uh, burn the bulbs of their heels. Uh, you've got uh, trotter patience and stuff. If the shoes are put on, put on wrong, they interfere, they scalp, they cut. You know, so every discipline, every every type of shoe has its problems if it isn't put on properly. And uh, it's just a case of, of people complaining about something that, that they really haven't uh, taking the time to uh, to to learn about and, and and understand how it should be put on. All they see is the bad jobs that that uh, that a, a large majority do. Certainly, does uh, that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, certain groups that will utilize pictures and from really grotesque jobs, but the truth yeah. is, a misapplication uh, misapplication of the shoe will hurt any horse, no matter what it's doing. right. I want to talk to you about some of the people who, who've been important in your, your career um, and uh, help educate some of the people listening that, that may not know how, how impactful these, these folks were. And, and number one, uh, the Chris brothers and, and Chris family, can you tell us a little bit about them and, and uh, what they've meant to the draft world? John and Joe came over from, I want to say, Hungary. They weren't very tall men. They were, they were, uh, in fact, Joe was shorter than I was, Joe Sr., but they, they, they had a trade. They knew how to do it. There are just so many, so many names out there that, that, uh, 
that do beautiful work and 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 really really work to help the horse. Bruce Daniels out of New Jersey. I wish I'd gone to his school. He had a school going shortly after I I, I got started. Um, Bruce was <laughs> he was amazing. Scott Stimson, another another big name in my era. Today, um, uh, I admire Craig. I admire uh, uh, Mark Schneider is going to be a, a a name that people will be reckoning with. Um, he already's developed quite a quite a reputation not only in the forge but but on his shoeing and and uh, and and working to get the animal to move properly. Steve uh, um, Krause over there at Cornell. There's a man that that's been shoeing. He's just a, a year. He's not even quite a year older than I am. But Steve had a, a, a career that that, that uh, has been awesome. Uh, Mike Willestein. There's just so many different names out there, uh, uh, and I'm terrible on names. It's got to be old age or whatever. But uh, but there are there's 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 many of them out there. There's a local farrier here that I admire, uh, uh, Jason Bill. You know they don't have to be they don't have to be in the in the spotlight to be somebody that you can admire. I admire somebody who who cares about the animal and does the best job that they can. Now, maybe someone else can do better, but if you're given the best you can, then then nobody can ask for any better than that. But uh, caring for the animal, I guess that that's that's always been the biggest biggest thing for me. First, the business, the making the money, all that 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 fell in line. But but there were a number of times that I I, I wouldn't do something because it wasn't wasn't good for the horse. One person I want to ask you about is someone we we sadly just lost the other day, who who was very impactful in, in horseshoeing, especially in Tennessee, uh, Bucky Hatfield. Tell us about your friendship with Bucky and and the mentorship he gave you. <laughs> I met Bucky at a convention one time. Bucky was instrumental in 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 uh, helping get the BF, BWFA started. He was uh, an AFA member. The uh, Guild of Professional Farriers. Bucky was one of the founders on that. Bucky was outspoken. Bucky, if he was in the crowd, you knew he was there. But uh, but he cared. He had a school in Tennessee, and then later on, he had a school down here in Texas. And uh, one of his uh, uh, one of his good friends, Dr. Rodriguez, used to used to travel with him out to uh, when he went out uh, out of the country to teach and stuff. Bucky was a person that you either liked or you didn't like. I know I know folks who who uh, didn't care for Bucky, but I also knew a lot of folks who did. And uh, um, I know as the years went on, as as, uh, as I got to know him better and stuff, um, I visited him at his home, and and I got a chance to to. In fact, I have two of his shoeing boards, and I I uh, um, I have an assortment of shoes that that uh, that he did over the years. I saw all the all the plaques and, 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 and anything to honor him that he had at his house. He was proud of all of that stuff, but he was mostly proud of his students who, who, uh, who went on to shoe and, and such. Bucky didn't need recognition for himself. What he wanted was, uh, was to make each person better that, that, that he could touch. And that's, I think that's what his goal in life was. He had an awful big heart. If he, you know, once you got to know him, you, you, he, he had an awful big heart. His later years, Bucky did, uh, did one or two hitches in Vietnam during the Cuban crisis. Bucky was, uh, was, uh, down in, in, in Florida and, and there, his, 
the, the, the group he was with, they were on call. Bucky had a steel plate in his head from, from one of his injuries. Bucky had a purple heart and, and, and numerous other, uh, uh, medals and stuff. Like most of the Marines out there, he was proud to be a Marine. In fact, when they, when they bury him, he'll, he'll be, he'll be buried in his, in his dress uniform. One of Bucky's friends, uh, for a long time was Myron McLean. You know, Myron. Mm-hmm. Every time, every time, uh, I got where I was taking Bucky to, to conventions because the cancer was getting to where he, you know, he couldn't go by himself. If something happened there, there needed to be somebody there. But every convention we went to, you know, you had to, you had to have your sneakers on because Bucky was over here saying hi to this one and hi to that one. And, and uh, the first person he always sought out was Myron. And, uh, he, uh, he loved being around the farriers. He loved, uh, he loved the trade and he loved being around the people. Retirement and, uh, staying active in retirement. And, you know, I, I, you had your health issues and, and looking back, was there anything you would change about planning for retirement and how, how important has it been for you to, to find a, a passion after shoeing for, to fulfill your time in retirement? First off, I would have, I would have had, uh, I probably would have gone out and found myself, uh, I don't know if you call them a retirement planner or a financial planner or whatever, but I would have definitely put money away for my, for my retirement. I never gave much thought about, about retiring. I guess I always figured I'd be shooting right up to the end and as such. But, uh, when it came, I surprised myself to say that I was, I was glad it was here. I was ready for it. The hours driving and, and, and the miles and, 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 and all the things that, that, that make us horseshoers and, and, and all the things, uh, things and reasons why we stay in the business. <laughs> it gets old after a while. Um, you get tired. You're ready to, to, you know, the old adage, I'm, I'm ready to sit in my rocking chair on the porch. So it just, uh, but, but the hard thing is to let go. The hard thing is to, uh, to watch the new ones come along. And, and, and I know when I follow the, the, uh, questions on any of the farrier sites, the young people come along and they ask the same questions that, that the ones last year and the year before and the ones back before I started shooting. It's all the same questions, but where it's old hat to us, it's brand new to them. So, so, uh, so you answer them and stuff and you do that, but retirement, retirement just kind of gave me time to, to sit back and, 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 uh, one day I just told the owner, I said, I'd like to try chainsaw carbon. Now, I'd never, other than cutting wood and, uh, cutting logs in the woods, I'd never, never done any kind of stuff like that. I picked up a saw and I carved out a bear. And that bear sits over in front of the uh, welcome center on this on this property right now. From then on, I started. Uh, I'd buy tools here and there, and, and gradually, eventually, I, I I've got all the tools I need, and I'd carve pelicans and this and that, and I see what what people are interested in. I did a big eagle with spread wings and stuff, and and that went out to West Texas and I said so. So I was lucky. I found something that that. Uh, that not only occupies my time, but I could supplement my income with. I really, really would, if, if I was doing it over again, I, I would have, I would have planned for the retirement days. As it is, I was very lucky how it turned out, but I would have done a lot more planning, not only financially, but what I was going to do, you know, uh, hypothetical situations. What if, if I had trouble with my back? There's a, there's a lady carrier in New Mexico going through problems with her back. Now she makes awesome belt buckles and stuff. She's having a hard time coping with, do I keep shoeing or do I, do I get out of shoeing? Rick Burton, 
Rick Ferdinand ended up having physical problems and stuff, and that ended his career. I'd be better prepared. I, I would. I'd, I'd have been better prepared. I'd like to thank Bruce Matthews for joining us and sharing his insight. I'd also like to thank Kwell for sponsoring this episode. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please post it to the episode page at AmericanFarriers.com slash podcast. Until next time, thanks for joining us.